What kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of world are we leaving for the next generation? Today's rapidly changing environment is forcing society to ask if education and our current systems are doing enough to prepare students to address tomorrow's problems. In the One Wish for the Future podcast, we listen to students and learn from notable guests across the arts and sciences. Collectively, they share their visions and explore ways to work towards a better tomorrow. Hi everyone, my name is Irene Ross. I'm from Princeton, New Jersey, and I am a recent graduate of Princeton University with uh, studies in African American studies and visual arts. So I'm an artist and researcher now. And my one wish for the future is kind of based on one of my favorite words in Spanish, which is duende. And I have recently kind of started this art space slash shop, which highlights artworks that are customized for people. And essentially the idea is to appreciate the quality of art that really inspires the soul. It's kind of like what duende means in Spanish. And for me, something that has been kind of getting me through all of the quarantining and, and self-isolation and the different emotional roller coasters that can accompany that has been trying to find the art or the something special in the mundane. So whether it be interactions with my family or virtual panels that we are having right now, finding the nugget of, of, of something that's really significant or, or artistic in, in what's happening. And something that I think um, I've been talking to with others is how it isn't just like visual arts or dance or something that is very classically understood as artwork. It can be teachers or, or the art of, of teaching or other different career paths or activities, making sure that we're really investing in each other and, and building bridges across cultures and et cetera, is just really appreciating the privilege of, of making connections as we are in this podcast slash panel. So happy to be here. Hi, I'm Bianca. Um, I'm upcoming sophomore, I guess, from the University of Chicago. I'm majoring in both global studies and media arts and design. What I wrote for my goal for like youth right now specifically is to kind of get away from kind of entitlement and idolization. Because I feel like a lot of youth, like we tend to look at celebrities and just like different human beings that occupy a large space in our media realm as like celebrities or stuff. And I think that um, gets away from conversation involving people and kind of this type of idolization and self-entitlement doesn't really prompt discussion that's needed to talk about the pandemics or different types of racial intolerance, things like that, that are plaguing our society at the moment. So kind of just looking to people as people rather than kind of idolizing people and really taking away from one's humanity. I'm Eugene Lee and I go to Johns Hopkins University. I become a sophomore this fall. I would say my passions are mainly traveling or just going to new places. And in my free time, I really enjoy going to art galleries to just look at um, media art or just paintings or just art in general. Also, I'm majoring in economics. I thought this One Wish for the Future opportunity is really unique because I've never been part of a podcast before. And since this is a very broad topic, I thought if I um, take part in this project, I could hear too many different insights and also share my thoughts 
on how I want the future to look like. So I'm glad to be part of this panel and podcast. I'm currently in Seoul, South Korea. Since March, I've been part of online classes and I think I'll stay in Seoul for the fall semester. Yeah, but overall, I'm doing good. Hi, um, my name is Yu Young and I am currently a rising sophomore at Georgetown University. I'm in Seoul, Korea as well, like Yujin. Um, so I'm calling in at like 11 in the night, <laughs> um, but it's all good. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, hearing Irene's wish is actually really like, um, it's oddly res reminiscent to my wish and I was really glad to hear Irene's perspective, but um, my wish for the future is that we let go of the constraints that we hold to, we hold and we bound to the act of creation. I think that we have this stigma and we hold this mentality that creativity is a skill and something that we have to like measure and monetize. And if you, you're not an artist unless you can actually draw well. And I really don't think that's the point of creating. Um, it's the spirit of the intent and the action. And I always like try to challenge myself to um, just make things and create for the sake of it. And in the process, I find that I actually heal and empower myself. And I wish that other people would nurture this um, potential and power in themselves. Um, so I think I wish really simply, I just wish people would create more, whatever these things may be. You're right. The key to success is finding your passion. Creativity allows us to explore ourselves, but many students don't have an equal opportunity to flourish under certain systems and meet their creative potential. So we're doing what we can to help close this gap and give motivated people like yourselves the tools they need to help themselves. I just wanted to add that I also used to think that creativity is a skill and is a talent that only um, certain people possess. That's how I thought in the past. And I, I considered myself as one of those people who are not creative and someone who's not good at like inventing things or doing art. But now I have a different perspective. And I feel like once you have that idea that creativity is a skill and talent that only some people possess, then that just like blocks your mean of production and the way to express your ideas and talents. So I wish that more people could like consider creativity as one of their, not a skill, but one of their options to express their ideas or, or just any talent. I'm Cece. I am a rising sophomore at Princeton University where I study linguistics and translation. Um, and to build on what Helen and Irene said, which I resonate with deeply, uh, if I were to have one wish for the future, it would be that we all become a little more empathetic to those around us because I really like, I really believe that everyone can benefit from having a little bit more empathy, even if it's something that we hold dear to us and all like nourish within us. I really believe that there's no such thing as being too empathetic. And this is something that I've been trying to hold close, especially during quarantine, um, 
kindness is so much more important than a lot of people realize. And I think that the most effective way to demonstrate that is to keep telling our stories. Now, especially, is not the time for us to whisper. I really feel that empathy is born out of inspiration. It's so, so important to be able to foster the creativity that empathy can be born out of. There's no question in my mind that we all need to be more empathetic to tackle the challenges posed by today's society at work, at school, at home, and in our communities. So I've begun gathering stories from historically marginalized voices. And to me, it's so, so important to shine a light on just people and what people go through in their daily lives. Because you never know what somebody could be suffering through in the moment that you come across them, even if you just like look at them as you walk pass them on the street. And something I'm really, really passionate about is just shining a light on everybody's story because everybody's story is important. I think um, the role models we have shouldn't be like Bianca said, like celebrities that we actually don't know at all. Like we have never talked to these people, but rather like people in our communities, friends we know and talk to. Um, and I think that's what Bianca's getting with the whole, like we shouldn't idolize people. Something that, that this conversation has reminded me of is a little bit of the framework of the research that I've been a part of. So one of the professors at my university, Dr. Rua Benjamin, has started a um, race, race and data lab, which is essentially um, seeking to uncover the racial dynamics of COVID-19 in many different ways. So from prisons to mental health, healthcare, arts and alternative futures, there are a bunch of different teams working um, with her to try and highlight those under or historically underrepresented voices um, in, in each of these categories. But something in particular that I wanted to highlight was um, the zines and playbooks that some of these teams are doing, specifically the Arts and Alternative Futures team is sourcing a lot of different Black artists and their voices and the type of arts that they've been doing to center themselves and also understand their role and identity in the midst of all of the turmoil that's happening. So it, 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 I believe it's mostly in New York, but the open calls for all artists around the country. And it's been really enlightening and, and wonderful to see the sort of arts that they're producing, be it poetry and, and visual arts. And um, it, it's a wonderful way to, I guess, kind of both highlight the artists themselves and allow them a chance to showcase their work, but also build connections between those artists and have them kind of collaborate towards a, a broader vision of what they see the world as now and, and what they'd like the world to be. So that playbook has been really wonderful to see. Can you tell us about when you became aware of racism for the first time? I mean, it's kind of a hard question to really put like a, a nice and neat and tidy answer on. But my best attempt would probably be, I mean, not only as a Black person, but as a person who majored in African-American studies, nothing about what's happening is kind of a new revelation to me. It's definitely just a continuation of a lot of the historic injustices that have been happening. And 
So in that way, I think I can speak for myself and others who I've talked to we, who aren't necessarily surprised at what's happening. What I would really like to happen is for there to be a continued engagement with the organization or organizing and other mobilizing that's happening. Because as much as it's easy to kind of post a black square and forget about the real things that are happening, it would be ideal for everyone, I think, to not only reckon with the things that are happening out in the world and which obviously allows you to distance yourself from what you believe to be the problem, but start in the heart and, and the home and the family. I think those are concrete ways to not only go beyond protesting, but thinking about how you yourself are, may or may not be complicit in the broader systems that are perpetrating these crimes, but it's my two cents. Yeah, no, like I definitely agree with, with what Irene is saying, just about how these problems, like especially to like a black person, like it's not something that just popped up, you know, like when I heard about George Floyd's killing, I was not surprised. You know, it wasn't a shock to me as to many other black people that um, my black peers, it wasn't a shock, you know, like these problems are historic, they're systemic. And I feel like when we're talking about Black Lives Matter, um, I think the best thing for people like who are not black identifying is to understand that these systems have been in place, you know, and to not think about Black Lives Matter as a moment, you know, but to more recognize the problems that go with that and to honor the people that have been working on these issues before Black Lives Matter became like a pop culture phenomenon in some type of way, you know, to continue to give, to continue to have these conversations and to not think about this social epidemic as kind of a moment, as kind of something that just has been a part of our news cycle. You know, we can't just think of this as something that's passing. Um, rather than to recognize why these systems are in place in the first place and to have continued momentum towards this like historic and terrible thing that plagues our society. I guess as a black person, it's just always something um, just, you know, when watching TV, you know, not really seeing anyone like you. I've always been aware of race because that's just been ever since I've learned words and things, it's just knowing your place, um, you know, how you're looked at. The first time I've learned of the violence of race, however, is in my predominantly white community, the first time I was called a racial slur as gorilla and monkey in my own neighborhood. Um, when I was like, what, five or six? I know I feel like every Black person, they're just born, especially with, well, I'm grateful for the increased amount of representation, but I know as a kid, there wasn't really much of that. So not really seeing myself in children's programs, in the books that I was reading, you know, I really had to search myself on, to see myself even in elementary schools other than you know, that one week of Black history, you don't really learn a lot about ourselves. And that's type of a lesson that Black children 
Black teenagers, we kind of have to go out of our way to learn about ourselves. You know, I think that's something that's like pretty weird. You know, like we normally go to schools to learn about each other, um, different, but the fact that I have to go out of my way to learn about myself is something that um, has always been a thing, I guess. So really having to go out of my way to see myself as a human being, um, and that's just, has always been, I don't remember when I just didn't see race. You know, I don't have that opportunity because of this, the skin that I have and because of my surroundings and because of what I'm looked at. Because no matter what, there are people that see me as less than. I think that's a really powerful statement. And obviously I resonate with it a lot. It's definitely something to come to terms with. I mean, Black children really have never had the privilege of seeing themselves as just kind of a, I don't know, blank slate, especially because of the criminalization and, and the heavy weight of assumptions that are placed upon them at such a young age. And the moment that, I guess, one of the moments that crystallized that for me as a, as a child is I remember being very, very young and being in the car on the way back from a family dinner and having a police officer stop us on the way home. And I was way too young to really understand and like grasp the weight of the situation. But what I could really strongly feel was the fear and intentionality between every angle of my parents' movements in the car and the passenger seat and the driver's seat. And I couldn't, I, I knew enough <laughs> at that point to know that this was a, an incredibly significant and maybe slightly dangerous moment. I think I was maybe like four or five at the time, but I think knowing that and having that like very early memory made the unfortunate witnessing of Philando Castile's murder with his daughter in the backseat such a more terrifying and traumatic thing to see on social media because you know in your heart that that family could have been yours. Right. So it's been interesting to grow up as a Black person in America, to put it, put it bluntly. Um, I guess I'm reminded of the kind of Du Boisian double consciousness idea, which is always something to think about, is that although a lot of times people say, oh, why are these Black people gathered together? What are they plotting? But the othering isn't something that we're just doing just because it oftentimes is like out of necessity. Like learning the Black National Anthem is something that we have to do to not only treasure ourselves and value ourselves, but also protect ourselves and, and our spirits against something that is constantly trying to tear us down. Yeah, um, you know, just going around, just knowing that the first thing that people see you as is not high on Bianca Simon. I will always be that black girl first. That is the first thing that anyone, especially in America, will look at me as, not as a human being, but as a color. You know, like the violent interpretations that result from that. It's just, it's, no matter where I go, I know the first thing that people will see me as is a black person, rather than Bianca Simon. This podcast was co-hosted by Mia Funk and Eugen Lee with the participation of Irene Ross, Cece Alexander Guidry, Yu Young Lee, 
Ileana Waits-Zuckerman, Helen Chang, and Bianca Simons. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this conversation sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published in our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.